May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Joseph and Mary never do want to leave the manger, do they? I read a story about Nancy Reagan. She's speaking to a group of university students in California at the Berkeley campus, I believe it was. And um, she was faced with a sort of hostile crowd, um, especially of young women. And one of them said to her, Mrs. Reagan, you were born in a different world. You cannot understand our generation. Our generation has things like um, televisions and jet planes and nuclear weapons and computers. You lived in a different age. You had none of these things. And Mrs. Reagan waited for her to, to have a little break in what she was saying and take a breath. And she interrupted and she said, My friend, you're right. We did not have any of those things. That's why we invented them. (laughs) I think that um, the same thing is often said, too, isn't it? Young people say to um, people outside of their generation, you know, um, you don't know what it's like. Uh, You didn't grow up with the Internet, Facebook, drones, you know. Um, You didn't live in that world. And, and, And the retort is the same, right? No, we didn't have them. That's why we invented them. And yet the same thing is true. There is a sense in which if a person was born in the 1930s, you could remember a world without television. If you were born in the 50s without jet engines. You know, if you were born in the 80s, you remember what it's like not to have a personal computer. It was an awful time to live, right? If you were in the 1990s, you could remember when 911 stood for fire and police, and that was all. Um... All of this got me to thinking about some contradictory notions that I hold together in my head, and maybe you do as well. On the one hand, you have Bob Dylan, you know? The times, they are a-changing, right? And, uh, and it seems that that's true, like, that there's so much change that happens so quickly in the world. I mean, I remember rotary phones. Yeah, I got a few heads out there shaking, right? My kids are like, what's a rotary phone? I don't get it. Or, um, or, or maybe I remember things like $400 VCRs, you know? Believe that or not. The times, they are a-changing. But on the other hand, the other axiom that I hold is equally true is the more things change, the more they stay the same. These are both true. You know, I, I never saw my great-great-grandparents, never even in a picture, right? A lot of people never saw their great-great-grandparents. Um, some people have, but I know that they're there. You know, somewhere back in the time, they were there. I'm connected by strong genetic cords, as you are you, to your ancestors. A lot of us have had this, um, uh, this sort of experience of going through an old box of photographs, and you're looking through it, and all of a sudden you pull out this, this photo, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, my, wow, that, that, that's, that's my sister or my brother or my uncle. That's exactly them. And then you realize it's like from 1920, and it's totally not your sister or your brother or whoever. This is, this is their descendant, the, the genetic identical almost. But they came from a different world. And the likeness sometimes is a bit spooky. We have these ancestral backgrounds that happen in our world, people that we're unfamiliar with, who, who didn't even think about us, um, who lived in different kind of environments. Um, you know, they might have rode horses and buggies. Uh, they might have lived in, in thatch-roofed homes. Um, maybe they, uh, they wore tartan kilts and uh, got together in clan meetings. Uh, I don't know what your ancestors did. But even further back, there are those who covered their nakedness with animal skin and lived in worlds with mythical-like creatures. But even in those dissimilar worlds, 
people did similar things. They learned to speak by mimicking their parents. They, they learned about the world through play and through work. They knew what it was to fall in love and have their heart broken. They knew the feeling of being hungry and of having eaten too much. They did things that we would do. I can imagine some jokester in, you know, 10,000 B.C. I don't know how far back. I'm not a biologist. But 10,000 B.C. saying, you know, making fun of a T-Rex's little arms. You know, like this happened somewhere. There was some, like, prehistoric jokester saying, you know, a brontosaurus can drink coffee and it cools before it hits the stomach. You know, something ridiculous like that is happening in a cave somewhere a long time ago. Because, you know, even though the times they are a-changing, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think one of the most the, the major epiphanies that, that um, adolescent people have is perish the thought, parents are actual human beings. You know, most of us don't think that, you know, remember for a long time, like all of a sudden one day you're in your 20s and you're like, wow, you know, like my mom and dad were like my age once. Like it never had occurred to you before. And all of a sudden it does. And every now and then, a parent will remember what it's like to be a teenager. I mean, that doesn't happen very often either. But, but these two things do on occasion happen. The nativity. The story I read to you from Luke's gospel deals with real people. This is a, a Lucan motif. They live in a different time, in a different place. They have no cell phones. They have no military drones, no televisions or movie theaters. They travel on things like donkeys or camels, but mostly they walk. They speak a different language. But they're real people with real names and live in real places. People with names like Joseph from a city called Nazareth. And Mary, his fiancée, probably 14 years old and very pregnant. A scandal in the ancient world as much as it would be today. They come from a real place, Nazareth, and they're going to a real place, Bethlehem. And they're going from these two places because real people, Augustus Caesar, Quirinius the governor, have ordered it to happen. They want to tax the world. And so they're building a database from which they can tax even the peasant world. And if we acquaint ourselves with just a few of these details, a few of the particulars of this story, all of a sudden, it's, it's not a Christmas card but it's a story of hardship. It's a difficult story. It's, it's a story sort of hewn out of the newspaper, not the glamour stories. It's the, it's the story of a family who loses a farm because they can't pay the taxes. Or an eight-year-old who's removed from her school because she's not a legal resident. A couple who cannot have children. Or a man who lives homeless on the streets and a big snowstorm is coming. This is the emotion that Joseph and Mary would have felt. These sorts of feelings... Oh, you say, but there were shepherds, and they probably didn't have the coolest sheep like we have right here, right? There were shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest rung of society. I mean, the lowest rung of society. Listen to what um, Craig Satterley, he's a a Lutheran bishop in, in Michigan. He writes this, by the time of Jesus, shepherding had become a profession most likely to be filled from the bottom rung of the social ladder by persons who could not find what was registered as decent work. Society stereotyped shepherds as liars, degenerates, and thieves. The testimony of shepherds was not admissible in court. 
and many towns and ordinances barring, shep- had, uh, ordinances barring shepherds from their city limits. The religious establishment took a particularly dim view of shepherds since the regular ec- exercise of shepherds' duties kept them from observing the Sabbath and rendered them ritually unclean. The most holy people in Israel society, the Pharisees, classed shepherds with tax collectors and prostitutes, persons who were center, sinners by virtue of their vocation. Luke's story isn't a Christmas card. It's not an oil painting. It's not the peaceful, gentle night. I see Joseph, you know, rubbing his forehead. I see Mary with a furrowed brow. Add to this a young woman who's pregnant and suddenly goes into labor. How terrifying that must have been. Not familiar with giving birth at all. Here, imagine a 14-year-old going into birth surrounded by medical professionals at a hospital. It's frightening. Sick her in a, in a barn with, with cattle and other animals. Maybe Aunt Mabel comes out to look in on her. Maybe not. Luke doesn't write it down. We don't know. Maybe she was there. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. This is not an all baby story. You've seen that one, haven't you? Oh, baby. This is, oh my word, a baby. Now? Now, this is a baby now? I, this is God, I, 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 Joseph and Mary had to say, what have we done to have the worst luck ever? The worst possible luck ever. It's like we're Cleveland Browns fans or something for crying out loud. It's just it's horrid. And now imagine you're in their situation. You're at your little roadside hotel, motel, and all of a sudden all these homeless men show up. And they start telling you these stories. And you think to yourself, my word, where do they get money for drink? You know, um, they just go on and they ramble about all sorts of things. And you think this is ridiculous. And all of a sudden, one of them says, and they told us where to find your baby. But who would believe shepherds? Shepherds are people without any credibility. They couldn't be taken as witnesses in a trial, at a court. Maybe our luck isn't so rotten, though, after all. I want to tell you something. Nobody makes up this story. You would never in a million years in the first century make up this story. Joseph, a victim of a, 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 hemoth, a violent government that wants to tax people. Mary, unmarried and pregnant as a teenager. Only space is a barn because nobody will give him room in the house. Only witnesses are tes- uh, the testimony of shepherds who's dubious at best. Who tells this story? Unless it's true. The only person who tells this story is the one who believes it to be true. And we know that it was a true story because it turned the whole world on its head. And tonight there are a billion Christians or more gathered together doing exactly what we're doing. Hearing this story again. And there are no Caesars. Oh, they're out there. They think that they're new, you know, Johnny come lately. But they're not, they're not. The baby in the manger, not with the power to change the world like he had. You see, this nativity story is a story of hope. It's hope in a hopeless situation. It's possibility in an impossible situation. It's a chance to turn the world upside down and see everything from a different point of view. 
It's a time to say to the rich and the powerful, you are not in control. And the humble and the poor are lifted up. And it comes to very real people. Like the ones that were looking back at you in the mirror as you prepared to go to church tonight. It comes to real people like you and me. And when we think that we've had a streak of horrible luck, it says to us, no. God has a plan. A plan of rescue for real people that includes us. Robert Fulgham tells a story about a friend of his who had this elderly father. Um, and Fulgham says his, his friend described his father as, um, as sort of solemn and humorless, you know, uh, a very rigid kind of um, unimaginative, uh, not very affectionate and uh, the father had been a mechanical engineer, and he sort of handled relationships the way you do pulleys and levers, you know, <laughs> not with a lot of interest or, or, or tenderness. Um, and, and he passed away, and, and Fulgram's friend had to go and take possession of his father's estate. And he, he went to his home, and he was cleaning out his stuff and going through his things. And, and he got to the top drawer of his bureau, and he opened it up, and he looked in, and he found exactly what he expected to find. Socks, all folded neatly and organized by color. Um, and, and then he gets to one side and he finds all these little boxes. And he starts going through the boxes and he finds his father's Air Force insignia. And he finds um, some little pieces of jewelry, a tie tacks and, and some cufflinks. He opens up one box and he finds his mother's wedding ring, the original box. A lock of her hair had been cut off and put inside of there when she had passed away. And then there was a little tobacco tin, and he opens up the tobacco tin, and, and, and he unwraps this tissue paper, and he finds this, like, index card. And, and on this index card are little tiny human teeth. And under each tooth, in his father's handwriting, the date. And Fulgram's friend realized that they were his teeth, that his father apparently had worked out a deal with the tooth fairy and um, had bought the teeth back and, and had collected them and kept them. And his friend says, you know, I, I began to realize that, that maybe I didn't know my father after all. Maybe I, I thought I understood him, but I really didn't understand him. Christmas is, of course, nothing more than God's plan to save humanity from ourselves. It's about God becoming a very real human person in order that we, too, might become very real human persons. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.